And welcome to Novak Now. This is Jake Novak on the Nothing Siegel Network. Obviously, a lot of important news stories just in the last few days to analyze and to talk about. And uh, in addition to this program, you can always catch my instant analysis on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. It's good to follow me there. I will follow you back. At JakeJakeNY is my Twitter feed. And of course, you can follow me on my Facebook feeds as well, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. Um, obviously, the big story right now is the in renewed attack from Gaza into Israel by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. More than 700 rockets fired over the weekend into Israel. And unfortunately, this time the death toll, first of all, there was a death toll in Israel, which is not always the case, thankfully, thanks to Iron Dome and, and the general inaccuracy of these rockets. But 700 rockets are, are, going to, are likely to, to hit some targets, and they did this time. Four Israelis died, a number of others injured, some buildings damaged. Sider Road, of course, hit almost as always as it is, and Ashkelon, a little bit more rare. It had some damage as well, and deaths coming out of Ashkelon. And obviously the Israeli Air Force, I'm using, I'm using the word obviously quite a bit, and I realize that because sadly we've gotten into this point where we find these things to be the the... the series of events to be almost expected. So uh, I'm aware of using that word, obviously, sadly. But the Israeli Air Force obviously retaliating, hitting some targets in Gaza, and reportedly getting a Hamas field commander, a very high-ranking field commander, also damaging the Turkish news service, a building used by the Turkish news service in Gaza. All these places agonizingly looked over by the Israeli military. In other words, it's just it, it, the, the contrast couldn't be more stark. You have Gazans, the Hamas, the Islamic Jihad militants firing 700 rockets just completely willy-nilly into Israel, not caring, in fact, probably even hoping that they hit civilians, just firing, firing, firing where the Israelis take a painstaking look at all the targets that they go after. They're looking for rocket launchers. They're looking for Hamas leadership positions where these attacks are being planned and looking to take them out. And this is part of the really, really incredible story that I think is actually even overlooked quite a bit by people who are even supporters of Israel. The the way that the Israeli military spends its time following a rules of engagement that they really, really strongly enforce and really, really try to continue to analyze and continue to make sure are fair and make sense. I mean, it is really no stretch of the, of the word, no, no exaggeration whatsoever to say that the Israeli military is truly the most moral fighting force in the history of the world doesn't mean that every single Israeli soldier is a saint. We're not saying that. What we're saying is the rules of engagement by the Israeli chief of, chiefs of staff, by the Israeli generals that are imposed on all the armed forces and all the soldiers are a very, very, very high priority. The survival of the state of Israel is, of course, the number one priority. But super high on that list is to make sure that the way that the Israeli defense forces fight and execute their operations is as moral as possible. It's the fewest amount of innocent civilians are killed, which is why the 
Islamic terrorists always use civilians as part of their attack strategy. On Friday, at the weekly riots on the Gaza border, and it's important to call them riots and not protests. Of course, most of the news media calls it a protest, and that's just factually wrong. These are riots. These are deliberate provocations at the border every single Friday. And on Friday, a sniper hiding behind a group of civilians injured two Israeli soldiers, a Hamas sniper. And this is the kind of thing that is just that incredible stark contrast between light and darkness, between life and death. The Israeli military's painstaking work to protect the Israeli civilian population and the Arab civilian population where Hamas and Islamic Jihad is deliberately putting their own civilians at risk and pu- as they target Israeli civilians. And as some people have pointed out correctly from a legal standpoint, and it's important to, to use legal, ta- legal terminology here because you have so much condemnation of Israel being used on, the, the wording that's used in those condemnations of Israel is so very often in those legal, war, crime, international court terms. If you use civilians as human shields as you attack other civilians, that is a double war crime. You have committed two war crimes in so doing. And I don't think I need to explain that too, cl- that too, too extensively. Obviously, targeting somebody else's civilians deliberately is a war crime. And if you use your own side civilians as a shield or, a fi- or, or, or hide behind them or shoot from around them, that is all, and put them in, in, in the direct line of retaliation... That is also a war crime, by the way. So Israel is dealing with the most immoral of enemies, while it itself is acting as the most moral fighting force of all time. And that really is the answer that people should give whenever you're confronted by someone who says Israel commits genocide, Israel is a, you know, Netanyahu is a war criminal. You should say, no, no, the actual, actually it's quite the opposite. Don't, don't, sheepishly say, well, they have to do what they have to do. That, that's really not the answer you should be given. And I understand this will end the conversation. I, 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 if you're hoping to have a long debate, this won't work. But the answer should be no, no, no. Israel is actually the most moral fighting force in the history of the world. And the facts really just prove that over and over and over again. The fact that Gaza isn't currently a parking lot is the biggest proof of that, the Israelis would be, have the military might and power and probably wouldn't take on much more international condemnation than they already do if they would absolutely level Gaza completely. But they don't want to kill innocent civilians in any situation. And so they, they avoid it. And that's, again, a, a really, really important message because you just continue to hear over and over again that term Israel committing genocide and there are a lot of laughable and fun ways to kind of refute that one of the ways that people like to do it is say well of course the Palestinian population since the establishment of the state of Israel has ballooned the population has ballooned very strongly so one of the things people say just from a factual basis is this is the worst genocide ever you know genocide literally means the erasing of a people of an ethnicity and that is not happening not by a long shot And the use of that word is very, very dangerous because it clearly inspires those who truly hate the Jewish people all over the world. The Poe San Diego 
uh, Poe San Diego uh, synagogue shooter last week in, in his manifesto. And again, I, I'm not going to link to it. I don't think we should say the shooter's name for reasons that I've talked about in the past. We certainly, and I don't, again, doesn't, shouldn't need a lot of explanation there. Shouldn't have to explain why we don't want to give publicity to people like this. But in his manifesto, he talks about Israel, you know, the, the genocide that Jews are committing against other people. So this kind of rhetoric resonates with people who want to kill us, including the white supremacist types, including the campus anti-Israel movement. Just this week, Williams College, a bunch of students put out a statement at Williams College, the elite college in New England on the East Coast here, using the word genocide, saying that the Israeli government, the Israeli people, army, commit genocide against the Palestinians, which not only is just factually and laughably untrue, but again, this is the wording that the white supremacists use when they go out and shoot us and attack the synagogues. Same wording. And I thank my friend, uh, Professor David Bernstein at uh, George Mason Law School, the Antonin Scalia Law School, for pointing that out. He looked into this situation at Williams College and uh, David Bernstein, a fellow Yeshiva Flatbush graduate, you should follow him on Twitter as well, Professor David Bernstein. He pointed out that Williams College point, but it's something that's important now because what we're going to hear in the next few days as Israel ponders its next moves is a lot, of discuss- a lot of the same kind of inflammatory wording. You'll hear it on the college campuses. You'll hear it in the European press, which is a point I want to make about how the Palestinians act in a way to get the attention in Europe, so much, so much more so than really here in the United States. But you'll hear all kinds of inflammatory wording and incorrect wording and defamatory wording towards the state of Israel, which is also used by white supremacists when they talk about Jews. And it's important to combine the two for many reasons. Again, the Palestinians seem to now be acting completely in hopes of disrupting things that are about to happen in Israel, the International Eurovision Contest. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it's basically like the World Cup soccer tournament, but for music. And it is a very, very heavily watched event worldwide, but especially in Europe. It gets something around the, in the neighborhood of 180 million to 200 million viewers. And last year, Israel won with a very quirky song, I'm Not Your Toy, in Hebrew, Ani Lo Buba, the whole so- the song was very quirky and kind of funny, and Israel won, and the winning country uh, gets to host the competition the following year. So that's happening later this month, and the Palestinians would like to disrupt it. The, the, they don't want a big attendance, they don't want a lot of people coming into Tel Aviv to, to see the competition, which is, about, yeah, again, it's going to be in Tel Aviv, not Jerusalem. And they don't want Israel to get this big PR boost from, from hosting the competition. Which is a yet another example of another thing you've heard me talk a lot about here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, which is that economics don't seem to penetrate the mindset of the people in, in Gaza and in, and in the West Bank. More so in Gaza than the West Bank, but certainly in both territories. You know, for years they've taught us in the schools and in the universities about how terrorism and crime and violence, that poverty and hopeless, economic hopelessness is the root of all of it. And if we could just get to that, we'll fix those problems. 
It's simply not true. It's not true when we talk about crime here in the United States. Poverty is not the cause of crime in the United States and, and never has been. And it's certainly not the cause of terrorism. And we just continue to see more and more facts popping up proving this. Not only do you have the fact that the Palestinians, who many of whom do work in Israel, those who certainly live in Israel and those who live in, in, in the territories who come into Israel to work, they'll benefit plenty from a Eurovision, from all the tourism and, and the added dollars. That, those, why, that would help them just as much. They work in the hospitality industry. They work in the restaurants. They work in, 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 that, in, that, in those businesses. But they're not interested in that. They're really interested in just the, you know, in the darkness and the hatred of, of, of fighting, uh, fighting this war that they think they're fighting. It's not really a war. It's just, it's just killing. It's just murdering. When you're just indiscriminately killing civilians and firing rockets indiscriminately, you're not really fighting a war. You're trying to execute genocide. Israel's fighting a war. Israel's fighting a war against Hamas leadership, against that ideology, and excluding the, the civilians as much as humanly possible. The other side is just committing random murder. It's very simple. And there's no real negotiating with that. And there's no real use of economics to kind of get around that. And right now the Palestinians seem to be looking for the only place where they would get sympathy, and that is really the European press. Europe loves this kind of stuff. They love to make it sound like Israel is attacking Gaza for no reason. They very often bury the, the cause of these Israeli retaliation. And they seem to be impressed by the Palestinians' resolute conviction and commitment to indiscriminately killing Jews. There's really no other way to say it. There's really no other way to say it. And that, of course, brings us to, when I talk about the economic issue, to the, the, the peace plan that the, that the Trump administration, led by Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt and a few others, this peace plan that we, we know is coming out pretty soon. Apparently, in June, we're going to actually have this peace plan revealed. But what we've been told in the last few weeks about the peace plan is very interesting. And some of it, I think, makes a lot of sense from a point of view of really presenting a moral and workable plan for sane people. In other words, this is a plan that if we were really dealing with two sides that were being sane and fair, could, pop, could probably work based on what we're hearing, you know, the little things we're hearing about it. But as I've just explained, I'm not sure, we're really not dealing with the sane side here from the Hamas, Fatah, Islamic Jihad side. And I say that with the understanding that apparently this peace plan is not going to be focused so much on political recognitions and political titles. The two-state solution granting Palestinian statehood is not part of this plan, from what we've been told. From what we've been told, most of this plan is about offering the Palestinian people a massive economic upgrade, a really big opportunity for them to get into the economic boom that, has, that, is, that Israel in general has been in, enjoying for a long time, to get into the real world, whether it's part of Israel's economic situation or not, but getting economic benefits for joining into a peace agreement with Israel. 
Now, I think that that's a realistic working plan if we were dealing with two sane sides. But what we're dealing with here with the Palestinians are, is a group of people who, again, as, as I've tried to explain, they're not interested in the economic benefits of anything. This is not, this is not born out of economic hardship. Are the Palestinians suffering from economic hardship? hardship? Absolutely. They certainly are. But their leadership isn't. Their leadership continues to get money from Iran, from other sources. Mahmoud Abbas has an entire residence just for his suits. Now, I'm talking about a closet or a floor or a, spe- or a bedroom that's been turned into a closet. I'm talking about an entire residence. Now, you know, we don't think of Mahmoud Abbas like some of these other propped up overweight dictators. It seems like all of them are overweight in the countries where people are starving, whether it's Venezuela or North Korea, places like that. We don't think of him that way, but we should. Because he lives a very lavish lifestyle while the Palestinians continue to suffer. Because he doesn't care. Sanctions don't work. And you know how we know that sanctions don't work? I hope you were paying attention at the Seder. The ten plagues were sanctions, right? Ten really rough sanctions. (laughs) And they didn't work. They didn't work. The people of Israel were freed because they got out of there in a small window of opportunity when they had a chance, and of course, (laughs) the Egyptian military pursued them anyway. I'm not really trying to use the Bible here as an historic source, but it's just, but it's a a political theory um, lesson plan. They don't work. Unless the leadership is taken out, as it was at the Red Sea, you don't, you're not free. You're not going to be free of these people. It's very simple. Very simple. And so, economics, I don't think, is going to work in this peace plan. But the reason why I don't think it's a waste of time, people say to me, listen, Jake, you've, you've made the argument many times, economic incentives aren't going to work t- for these you know, terrorist radical types. So why, why would you think it's, it, it's not a waste of time for Jared Kushner and Greenblatt and Trump to present an economically based peace plan? The reason is because you have to be moral and fair in your own dealings with people, even if you know they're not going to accept it. The American people and the Israeli people deserve to have a fair plan expressed on their behalf and presented to the Palestinians. And if they reject it, they reject it. And then we have to talk about other options. Then Israel and the United States must, do, must discuss other options. And I must say, and I hope that most of you are as well, I must say I'm very encouraged by the two tweets that President Trump sent out yesterday not only expressing the support for Israel as it defends itself, that frankly, even the Obama administration made similar types of statements during attacks like this. But then that second tweet, so very, very important, where President Trump addresses the people of Gaza directly and says, people of Gaza, this isn't the way to go. We can offer you a much better life if you stop with the crazy, indiscriminate killing of Israelis. It's not going to get you anything anywhere despite what your leaders are telling you. This will not succeed. And it will only make you poorer and more desperate. That was really important that he said that. And I, and I hope that he continues with that kind of messaging. Because the people of Gaza have got to realize this. And if they're ever going to get anywhere, they're going to have to get rid of this current leadership. Now, the other major issue here is that, as has always been the case with Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, those are really not the only two entities at the table. We know the United States plays a big role. Of course, they're trying to play the role of a moderator. But in the role of instigator, in the role of troublemaker, there have been a lot of other countries over the years that have been a problem. 
For years it was Saudi Arabia. For years it was Egypt to some degree, with when, especially when Nasser was in charge. But now we know that the real power and control in Gaza is Iran. Iran right now, which is increasingly desperate as whatever level of the oil sanctions that are now being imposed, and it's not 100%. Iran, Iranian oil is still getting out there, but they, their economy is collapsing from within. They're getting less oil money, despite the fact that the price of oil you know, ha- generally has, is, is quite stronger than it was just a few months ago, although now it's starting to go down again. But we're still at a $60 level in that $60 to $70 range when we were in the $50 to $60 range, and that's a big difference. That's billions of dollars more almost daily when you think about it for the industry as a whole. So, but nevertheless, Iran is suffering, and they're flailing. And one of the things that they, they, they do when they start to flail is try to strengthen their allegiances, try to st- strengthen their ties to the countries and, and other parts of the Arab world. Or, you know, again, Iran is not Arab. They're the Muslim world, I should say. And so they are instigating more mischief in Israel. And that was never more clear than this past weekend because Egypt was working really, really hard with, the, with, with Hamas and the Gazans to try to get them to stop the firing. And it didn't work for days because Egypt, which long had tremendous influence of Gaza, of course, Gaza used to be an Egyptian territory before the 1967 war, but Egypt continued even after that to have tremendous influence in, that, in, that, in the Gaza Strip, and they don't seem to have it anymore. It's really just Iran. And despite the Sunni-Shia difference, you know, Iran's is Sh- Iranians are Shia and Hamas and Islamic Jihad are Sunni, this is one of those instances where it's just crossed over. Same thing going on in Yemen with the Houthi rebels. The Iranians have, with their money and their militancy, have won over some parts of the Sunni community, which is what Saudi Arabia is so afraid of and what they've been fighting so hard against. You know, it's, it's absolutely true that the Iranian nuclear deal that the Obama administration and John Kerry pushed through was the top catalyst in Saudi Arabia's policy change. In their change towards their attitudes towards Israel, they've become even warmer to the United States. You know, you might have thought Saudi Arabia and the United States were as close as possibly could be during the two Gulf Wars, but they're even closer now because of that fear of Iran escalating because of the nuclear deal. But that wasn't the only reason for that. And I I happen to think that there's a very good chance Saudi Arabia would have gotten to this place where they are in a de facto agreement, peace agreement, whatever you want to call it with Israel, and they are really working on really, really focusing on stopping Iran and joining with anyone who's willing to help them in that. I think that that would have got, I think that would have happened anyway, even without the nuclear deal, because of what Iran has done to some of these areas in the Sunni community. Iran's increased presence by basically controlling Hamas now, working with the Houthi rebels, and of course what they've done in Syria for so many years, and that's really not the the perfect Sunni-Shia example because the Syrian Muslims are Al-Ayu Muslims, and that's a little bit of a different group, but nevertheless, they're not Shia. So that's frightening for Saudi Arabia because they feel like they are the leaders of the Sunni community, and for Iran to make these kinds of alliances and allegiances and power connections very, very troubling to them. So even without the Obama-led Iran nuclear deal, I think we would have been there. And so, but that, but the problem that, with all of that is that, again, Iran is a nation relatively fur, you know, far, further away from the whole conflict geographically 
And they really, really don't care about what goes on and the, and the civilian deaths on either side. I mean, it's one thing for the Hamas leadership not to care about their own civilian death toll. Iran really doesn't care about it. And so they're encouraging more and more and more of this. And they're more desperate. And that is one of the reasons why negotiating any kind of a deal with the Palestinians is just so difficult. It's difficult on the level of the fact that it's really Iran that's the power broker on the Hamas side. They don't really have that kind of influence with Fatah, but making a deal with Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas is questionably worthless without Hamas joining in in it. So it's really, that's one, that, that, that's a major problem right there. And of course you have Iran involved and Iran's not interested in any peace. And they're not interested in the economic viability of the Palestinian people. And they never will be. Not under this regime. And so you have this really, really difficult situation where it is not just the Palestinian leadership or even just the Hamas leadership. I mean, it would be a huge mountain to overcome if it were just a question of who do you talk to, Fatah and Hamas, and can you get them both to sit at the table? Uh, it's, it's really not a stretch to say that Hamas and Fatah hate each other basically as much as they hate the Israelis. If there's a difference, it's very minor, and I'm not, and I'm not so sure there's a difference. That would be bad enough, but the, but the biggest problem is that Iran really represents Hamas, and so you're dealing with a major, major player in the whole region that isn't sitting at the table and isn't interested in any of the offers anyway. Which is, again, one of the many reasons why this plan is dead on arrival, but it also is important. It doesn't mean the plan isn't important because, again, that offer, that extended offer, not for the news media and not for the PR but just for the fact that Israel must act, continue to act as a moral nation. And moral nations offer peace and offer friendship and offer cooperation before they go to war with anybody. And it's not for the, the public relations battle that Israel wouldn't win anyway, probably. And it's not, again, just for the headlines. It's, 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 it's for a real. It's for, it's, you act in a moral way for, because you act in a moral way. People who only act morally when the cameras are rolling and when the reporters are there are not moral. I don't think I need to explain that. That's why you have so many instances of politicians who talk one way and speak about social justice and things like that, and it turns out that they are abusing women or they're stealing money or they're doing all kinds of other things. People who are so publicly moral, and this includes people in, you know, leading clergy in all the, all the major religions, people who make such a public statement of how personally moral they are all the time, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Because so very often those people are not that way. Anyone who is truly moral, anyone who is truly trying to live in the right path and really makes that their top priority, knows how much of a challenge it is and doesn't go around boasting about how great they are. <laughs> that's, you know, it, it's not just a case of not being humble and arrogance. It's a case of understanding who the real threat is. And the real threat is always around the corner. The next threat to someone who's trying to live that perfect life is, is, is constant. So we don't boast about it. People who, who try, you know, people who are that way should not and do not boast about it. So it's not for that reason, but it is for the reason of morality just following their own rules and trying to follow that own, their own path. But again, this peace plan and all the other issues that have happened over this weekend are in so much trouble because of Iran. Iran is now really, really pulling the triggers against Israel, and they're doing it more constantly and more brazenly than they have ever done before. And peace deal can't be made while Iran is doing this. 
So once again, my friends, as we wrap up here, Novak, now on the, on the Nachum Siegel Network, as I've spoken many, many times before, this again comes down to Iran, Iran, Iran. Iran has long been an instigator of trouble in the Middle East. That's nothing new. But what is going on now in the last several months, and maybe a couple years or so, is Iran is deliberately standing in the way more than ever before and has amped up its belligerence in the area. And we will not have peace until the regime in Iran is gone. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Stiegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.